This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. like it's like just forgetting about syria completely and you know it's, it's, it's i don't understand how that kind of selective memory is possible russia's invasion of crimea dominates the news this audacious attack on a neighboring country has shocked europe with its sheer brutality of course muslims have experience of russia's tactics in war from grozny in chechnya to eastern aleppo and beyond the Russian military machine is neither guided by morality nor humanity. In Aleppo alone, some 30,000 civilians were slaughtered, leaving the few that remained to painfully evacuate their city. Much has been written about the hypocrisy of these past few weeks, the collective sympathy that was largely absent when Middle Easterners were concerned, the overt racial and Islamophobic undertones that casually accompany news reports, but also the coordinated political response of the past three weeks, absent when the Russian bear was on the march in Syria and Chechnya, we have become tired of being valued as second-class humans. Human rights for us is mere mantra, employed to invade our countries. But when all is said about the double standards, Muslims are confronted with two big questions – how should we understand the crisis and how should we respond? Sadly, on both counts, many have opted to either embrace the left's anti-imperialism narrative and in turn sound like they sympathise or support Putin's actions. Pro-Russian propaganda outfits like RT and their supporters like Glenn Greenwald are presented as trusted sources, despite their whitewashing of horrific crimes in the massacres of Syria. Some, without political or sufficient Islamic understanding, have even suggested that neutrality is the best course of action. Sadly, there is an absence of political literacy within some of our ummah. This is unsurprising, as today, anyone can set themselves up as social media experts, looking to comment on all issues that they have spent a few minutes digesting. A year ago, we were all experts in vaccines and alternative medicine, Today we are experts in European geopolitics. The Muslim tradition of expertise and informed knowledge has been lost and replaced with ill-informed superficiality. Sadly, this democratisation of knowledge has worked to make us intellectually poorer. I am your host, Muhammad Jalal, and today I invite back onto The Thinking Muslim, Professor Joseph Kaminsky from the International University of Sarajevo. Joseph speaks to me about the crisis, how to view the actions of America and the impact upon Muslims in Bosnia, who are once again facing a belligerent Serbian movement, supported by Russia. He also passionately discusses some of the takes that have been circulating the Muslim Twitter sphere. Right, well, I think we'll start, and, and, and maybe I'm going to start with uh, 
one of my questions that come way down the line about how Muslims should view yes, the currency, sure. because I think that's quite important. I mean, I, you know, again, it, social media is, is very much a, it's, it's a snapshot and it's not a real uh, indicator of Muslim public opinion. And of course, Muslim public opinion cannot be boiled down to one monolithic view. But um, yes. I, do, I do find that uh, there are sympathies for Russia in, in the Muslim community. Maybe this comes from the anti-imperialism left, where yes. Uh, yes. anyone who's against America automatically earns our respect. But also, yes. uh, I suspect uh, Russia Today and, and various other propaganda outlets have, have probably achieved or done a good job in, in terms of uh, propagating the Russia line and, and the Russia argument to the degree that I've come across well-meaning Muslim commentators who who are uh, you know churning out Russia Today articles and and you know yeah. analysis. So um, one line that I found quite prominent here in the UK in the Muslim community is is okay they're both you know in error. America has its problems and of course America has has has, a, has uh, undertaken some horrendous. Uh, acts against uh, the Muslim Ummah in the last 20 years of the war on terror. But also Russia has its, its problems as well. And so there is an acknowledgement that Russia is indeed the problem. But uh, the, 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 I suppose the automatic response is that we're sitting this out. We're, we're looking at this from a, a neutral stand and, and the Muslim community just has to not condemn or condone or get involved. And I, I just wonder, I mean, that, that doesn't sit easily with me for some reason, but I can appreciate, um, you know, the 20 years of geopolitics that has informed that view. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to weave this into a coherent question, Dr. Kaminsky, but I suppose I want to start by asking, I mean, should we as, an, as a Muslim community, should we stay neutral in, in, in the face of what seems like an unprovoked, horrendous uh, attack against uh, you know, against ordinary civilians in the heart of Europe? Well, in my opinion, um, you know, know, withstanding all of the arguments Russia has made about NATO expansionism and this sort of deal that wasn't really an official deal when Secretary of State James Baker during the 90s made some comment that NATO wouldn't expand further east into Germany, specifically was talking about, like, you know, anyone who knows anything about international relations knows this, a spoken word agreement is not a formal treaty, right? Withstanding all of that, uh, the, the Russian grievances, yes, this is a clear act of aggression by a great power against its neighbor state. And um, I, I don't think that this is the kind of thing that we can just as Muslims quietly sit there and say, it's their problem, let them deal with it. Because all of this stuff, you know, the world's an interconnected place. And as things go wrong in Ukraine, there's no reason to think that this won't spread this irredentism, this Slav, Russian, Serbian nationalism narrative. What's bothering me about a lot of this, other than what I consider to be just childish, you know, well, ha ha ha, too bad, now the white man can fight himself, which is not an Islamic perspective. This is not how Muslims should see the world. And like, I don't think a lot of the, the, the I don't think it's as much support for Putin per se, as it is sort of like, ha ha, we got you kind of like, knee-jerk reaction and isn't really intellectualized in a serious manner. And I think that this is a major threat for Muslims. And here's why. It seems like people forget that there are Muslims in the Balkans, right? And I, I, I mean, I live here, so it's more apparent to me, I think, than most. But if Russia gets away with doing what they're doing in Ukraine and they just march right on through, there's no reason to assume that it's going to stop there, right? Serbia has very close ties to Putin and the Russian government. And there have been multiple documented pro-Putin rallies being held in Belgrade. And if Ukraine goes, that is going to really potentially be destabilizing for Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo. Probably more so for Bosnia, however, because there still are troops, big U.S. air base in Kosovo. And my colleagues here in Bosnia seem to think that that is you know, Vucic isn't going to be able to get that. But he could, with help from Russia, potentially destabilize this uh, Republika Srpska part of this country, which constitutes 49% of the landmass of Bosnia-Herzegovina in the north and in the east. And uh, <clears throat> this could be very destabilizing and potentially disastrous for Muslims here. So, 
you know, anybody who's following geopolitics should understand Russia's dodgy history. And uh, I, I don't understand how people can just out of just sheer spite for the United States foreign policy, ignore what Putin has done in Syria. And that entire conflict changed as soon as Putin and Russian troops got involved. It seems like long distant history at this point, but if we remember, there was a point where it looked like the Free Syrian Army and the rebels might actually overtake the government. That the IRGC, the Zainabiyun or Fatimiyun or whichever brigades they brought in weren't going to save Assad. Only thing that saved Assad was Russian air power and Russian troops on the ground. <laughs> and uh, as for Muslims, this is a disastrous tragedy that I think we cannot just forget because of things America has done in the past. Uh, you know. I, I've been paying a little bit of attention to what's going on in northern Syria, and it's, it's a real disaster right now. Like, people are fighting amongst themselves. I have to hear Sham sounds sort of like a mafia more so than anything Islamic at this point. We all probably know the Bilal Abu Karim stories being tor tortured and forced out. And, you know, it, it's it's just caused a disaster. It's, it's not going to get better in Syria. Assad is as strong as he's ever been. Other international actors are starting to come back to him slowly. And this is all Russia's fault. And let's also not forget, Russia's playing a pretty nasty role in some conflicts going on in Africa right now as well with these mercenaries, this Wagner group, which we all know take orders, even though they're a private firm, you know, we all know that they're not doing anything that's gonna go against the interests of uh, Putin and the Russian state, right? So it's, it's sort of a informal arm of Russian foreign policy as well. So Russia is indeed an expansionist imperial power that perhaps hasn't been as effective as the United States has been at conquering the world, but nonetheless are making their full efforts to engage in great power politics, as we call it. And I, I don't see uh, any justification for supporting this offensive action that, let's be honest, there could have been more negotiations and other things that happened prior to getting to this point. Ukraine was not about to immediately join NATO in the next month. Ukraine is nowhere even close to being a member of the EU. And this is something that did not have to happen now. So why do you think Putin acted now? Perhaps Putin saw that, you know, Biden's a different president. Maybe he thought he could get away with it more. I don't quite know. Maybe he's doing this thinking this will help empower Trump's return, right? Because the price of gas in the United States is well over $4 a gallon, which is a, that's, that's a big number. You know, once you cross the $4 threshold, and, you know, a lot of people who study politics know the presidential approval ratings really do hinge on gas prices and inflation, both of which Biden has been very unsuccessful in handling so far. So, you know, there's other machinations going on with this invasion, but no, I don't think Muslims can sit on the sideline as a true injustice is transpiring. I mean, you mentioned Bosnia there and, and you brought in the, uh, the tension or the feeling that exists in, in Bosnia that... Um, uh, the unsteady or uneasy peace that's um, dominated Bosnian politics for the last uh, since the since the nineties is about to uh, is about to possibly break apart. Um, I mean, before the Ukraine crisis began, um, there was a lot of discussion about the Republic of Srpska's stoking uh, a conflict in in Bosnia. Um, has that somewhat calmed as a result of the Ukraine crisis, or? Is there still this feeling that um, a, if we were to call it a, a possible Russian front through Serbia, that that uh, Bosnia could explode once again? Yes, interestingly enough, once again, speaking with my Bosnian colleagues who are much more personally on the ground, focusing on this as their entire research interest, this tragedy in Ukraine, and it, it is that tragedy, cities are being destroyed and occupied and countless deaths actually sadly is possibly good for Bosnia in the sense that international community now recognizes that you know we don't want to see this happen again here and there's I believe up to 1500 was what I heard U4 troops might be coming back from the EU basically to keep order here in Bosnia which is something they've been very hesitant to do and uh in terms of domestic politics you know Croatian actors in this country, because remember there's three entities here, there's three peoples, there's Croatians, Bosnians, and uh, 
Bosniaks, I should say, and Serbs. And even the Croats lately have been sensing this disunity and some of the more nationalist actors here, HTZ party, have been trying to push harder for their own third entity. And the thing, the reality is, is if any of these entities break apart, if there's a creation of a third entity or if the RS, which is Republika Srpska, the Serbian part, breaks off and declares full autonomy or independence, this country can't really function. Like, it's just not gonna work. So these threats to the territorial integrity of Bosnia are very real. And the, 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 the Croat actors have really changed their tone in the last couple of weeks, talking about the need for Bosnia to remain unified. And even some of the Serb actors have had to realize that, you know, as much as they like Russia and they wanna be, you know, their own, whatever they're trying for, which isn't even fully clear, you know, it's not clear that Serbia even wants to fully integrate this Serbian entity into their country proper. They've also toned it down. You know, Vucic has an election coming up in April, I believe, the president of Serbia. Nobody wants to be on Team Russia right now too explicitly because Serbia cannot withstand the sanctions and the potential financial fallout if they align too closely with Putin. So they also have had to toe the fine line here. And you know, a lot of Bosniak commentators see this as finally the opportunity to really move forward on stabilizing this country and hopefully putting an end to all this uh, irredentism and these efforts to break the country apart. But there's only a limited window to act and get things done here. So Bosniak commentators recognize that if this opportunity, and I hate to call it that because it's just such a, it sounds so Machiavellian, but it's, if this opportunity is squandered, there might not be another one to really bring order here. And you know, this country, like I said, I, you know, I, I travel around throughout the country, you know, I can freely go into the Serbian part, the Bosniak part, the Croat part, and you don't have troops on the ground stopping cars and no checkpoints or anything. But there's definitely a lot of tension and a lot of people are concerned. And rightfully so, this country experienced a truly horrific war that sadly has been really sort of missed. A lot of people keep saying this is the worst conflict in Europe and since World War II, but it's almost forgetting that there was a really horrendous three-year war here where tens of thousands of people were killed. And you know, one of the worst genocides of all, the Srebrenica genocide. So like, it's, it's really, it, it sort of does show the bias. And we can talk a little bit about that too in media coverage, which does upset a lot of people here and Muslims generally, because let's be honest, Ukraine is getting an enormous amount of coverage. But at the same time, it is also the country that's currently experiencing an invasion from a malignant foreign great power. So, is it fair to to argue that if uh, if the Republic uh, Srpska had had begun its uh, its quest for independence and and potentially even used uh, military force in in that pursuit, that there would not have been the outcry, um, the level of uh, of unity that exists today in Europe and America. Um, you know that that may not have existed if, if, for example, that was, if we were to argue this is part of a greater great power game, if Putin had started with Bosnia first. Yes, I think it's safe. I don't want to definitively say because we can't really know anything unless we experience it in real time. But I think it's pretty safe to assume that the outcry would have been significantly different, right? Serbia or RS trying to separate from Bosnia as a country would would. Be sort of seen as more of a regional skirmish between you know ancient hatreds. This is the argument that some misguided Western scholars have called this. And it would be just sort of chalked up as more of the same in the Balkans, which would be really disastrous. I think eventually if things got really bad here, the EU and US would get directly involved because I don't think these guys are completely clueless as to what could happen here. But yeah, I don't think the global outcry and the mass support that Ukraine has seen from just about every walk of life except Russians <laughs> would have happened here. And uh, part of that is because of, I, I would say, I would fairly say perhaps Islamophobia a little bit, but also partially because, you know, when Russia does something that's a, it's a nuclear armed power invading another very large country, right? If there's something going on here, just the scale would be so much less than what we see with Ukraine, right? Like even if the RS tried to start, you know, a conflict, they wouldn't have the same weapons and the same visual images you could see that you see in Ukraine right now. Can we go back to history a little bit in in 
in trying to understand uh, the current crisis in Ukraine. Now, uh, for our listeners, can you explain Russia's claims or supposed claims uh, over parts of of Ukraine and why Ukraine uh, means so much to Russia from a geopolitical uh, perspective? Well, if you look at the writings of certain, uh, specifically Alexander Dugan, who some people write off as a quack or as somebody who's just crazy, but, you know, I, I always tell my colleagues who like laugh about him because he is sort of seen as a fringe figure. His, his, his work, his ideas really do resonate with what Putin is doing. So I, I, and he is known to have interacted with people in the highest levels of Russian government over the years. So there's no reason to assume that what he says doesn't sort of resonate with what these people are also thinking. And yes, they see Ukraine as not an authentic state. They see it as a part of, that this is a, a part of Russia that should be back, the Russians really, and they're sort of misguided. It's almost a similar irredentism that we saw with the Serbs sort of seeing the Bosniaks as just like, they're really Serbs, they just sort of don't understand it yet. And this sort of neo-imperial irredentist attitude is really a part of the Russian far right, and it's been that way for a long time. And uh, this Donbass region does have a large ethnic Russian population, right? But, you know, once again, nation states today aren't designed based on ethnic populations. That, that's not how things work. And I don't think that'd be a good world to live in anyways, if everyone just, you know, every state was ethnically pure, that would be ripe for disaster and violence, right? Uh, so with Crimea, which also is majority Russian, ethnically Russian, they were able to sort of take that without much, uh, you know, without much of a struggle. But this Donbass region is a little different. You know, Crimea itself is something that uh, I don't know the exact history, but I know at one point it was given, I think it was Khrushchev gave yes. Crimea to the to Ukraine as a sort of a gift. And, you know, this kind of gifting of land happened a lot during the Soviet times, right? This is a, sort of the essence of Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Georgian conflict as well. Uh, you know, territories were ceded back and forth as internal agreements to make people happy. And, you know, the problem is when the Soviet Union broke up, a lot of people wanted their, you know, their claims back, right? And the same with Armenia and Azerbaijan and this uh, Nagorno-Karabakh region, we, there's that, also goes back to Soviet. So yeah, so this, uh, the idea that this is just about NATO expansionism is what the real misguided understanding is. I, this is more than NATO expansionism. This, this really has to do with an imperial belief in reconquesting territory that is rightfully ours. NATO it might is definitely a part of the equation, but I don't think it's the only thing. And I still think they would look for an excuse anyways to do this, even if the NATO question was taken well, off the um, table. Uh, so you, you bring me to NATO expansion, and Professor uh, John Mersheimer has, um, has courted controversy over the last few years, and in particular over this last week when he, he penned his, or he, he was interviewed by the New Yorker magazine, and um, uh, in that, he, he said that uh, Putin is acting uh, according to, um, to, to, in effect, rational design. Um, he is responding to years of provocation by uh, NATO. And, and what he specifically meant was that um, the, uh, the broadening, broadening of NATO uh, beyond its uh, Cold War boundaries uh, was was a provocation against uh, against Russia and, and Putin, and um, uh, he had warned against this for some time. Uh, in fact, he cites in that uh, in that interview that um, uh, even some of the you know the um, the Cold War warriors uh, after the end of the Cold War uh, they were worried about NATO expansion, and. Um, uh, and, and believe that it, it was a, a foolhardy exercise. So he firmly places the responsibility in the hands of America and the US acted in, a, in an aggressive way after the end of the Cold War, where it could have uh, brought uh, Russia into a European, uh, into a European alliance. Uh, it sought to contain Russia and act um, in a in a in a in a what he would term an aggressive way towards this great power. And, I mean, it seems like you you disagree with that, but why why specifically? What what's the problem with that perspective? I mean, yes, I, there is like validity to that claim, but at the same time, uh, you know, the world changes, right? And you know, Russia has not exactly been a great neighbor to everyone else. When you look at what it's been doing regionally, 
really for the last 20 some years, it's, it's, it's not itself the most pacifistic actor. You know, there's a reason why these states all wanna join NATO, right? There's a reason why they seek the security blanket of this alliance. And yes, he's right. NATO is primarily about containing Russia. There's no denying that. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I think a full scale invasion of Ukraine like has been operationalized in the last couple of weeks is, is really an extreme response to an actor that hasn't even yet really formally begun the NATO accession process. It's, it's, it's unprecedented really. And um, he's sort of proving right that like, you know, now there's word that Finland is interested in joining NATO, Sweden, uh, you know, all these Balkan countries or, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina once again is really trying to speed things up here. Uh, you know, nobody's really seeing Putin other than Serbia as their ally and friend who they can trust and depend upon. So, you know, while he may have a technical point there, in reality, though, you have to look at his actions as well. And uh, they haven't exactly been the most, um, let's say, neighborly, so to speak. Like I said, we shouldn't, I should be clear here, this action didn't just happen overnight. There have been planning, you know, ev uh, some security reports have indicated that basically since Biden took power, there have been evidence that Russia has been getting ready to do this. So this has been going on for like almost a year, the preparations for this, right? And they started to speed up in the last couple of months, but people on the ground sort of felt something might be coming. So, uh, you know, Mearsheimer's argument, I think, is missing the point. And this is what happens when you're a hardcore neorealist is that we do have international institutions, whether we like them or not, and you're supposed to go through those institutions when you try to rectify a problem before just starting an aggressive offensive war to get your way. And it doesn't really look like Putin calculated all that well exactly what's going to happen, because it seems like the world community is almost universally united against his action. And What did Putin see in global politics that uh, allowed him to miscalculate in such a... Uh, a great way. I mean, Putin is normally regarded as a cool, rational actor, a strategist. So what went wrong for him? Well, I think he thought perhaps that Trump had weakened things enough that, you know, if you look at, you know, perhaps his assumptions might not have been all that crazy at the time. You know, Hungary was completely going against consensus for the last, you know, Poland as well, in many ways. Uh, we can see that. Um, and these two countries have come, come on uh, have joined the come, come, right? Yes, absolutely, yes. And uh, I, I don't think he could afford to. He probably assumed if he did something like this, there would be some economic sanctions, but the mass exodus of corporations, yeah. McDonald's is closing down, Adidas won't sell their clothes there anymore, Apple, my, all these companies, he probably didn't see this level of unity on this. And perhaps also he thought he had some leverage with this Nord Stream 2 pipeline for the Germans. He probably thought they're never going to do anything because this is like huge investment. We're like they're totally dependent upon us for uh, you know oil and or natural gas specifically. So therefore, like he probably thought a fractured, frayed Europe left in the aftermath of the Trump years would continue, and he would just sort of be able to get away with this, and there would not be enough unity to really stop it. But you know, within a matter of days, there's almost global consensus that this is wrong, and this is because uh, you know. <clears throat> There's no reason to assume that if he gets away with doing this, you know, Belarus is already a puppet state. He's already conquered that without even having to fire a bullet. And there's no reason to assume that why not go for those Baltic countries next? Estonia, uh, you know, perhaps even Latvia, Lithuania. Why not uh, seize them next? And that would be a real problem for the, because then NATO would be obliged to actually get involved in a gun-to-gun -gun conflict with Russia, right? So I think that, once again, going back to self-interest, you know, yeah, there's an element that, of, of moral outrage, but also the reality is if Putin gets away with doing this to a non-NATO country and he decides, yeah, let's see if I can get away with pulling off Estonia. Well, the way that Article 5 works is everybody be obliged to fight back. So, you know, trying to stop him now before it really turns into a genuine world war is absolutely in the best interest of European actors who you know, have no stomach to have that conflict with a nuclear-powered country like Russia. I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm perplexed, Dr. Kaminsky, as to why he acted now and why he acted in the way he did. Um, you know, he, he was fighting this murky war in, uh, in the Donbass region. 
uh, where he could, you know, he could actively deny that uh, Russian forces were were involved. Um, you know, mm -hmm. he has uh, he has been chipping away at uh, the so-called European democracies across Europe, and Hungary is, is a good example of that. There was a, a strong uh, alliance forming, or at least a, a relationship forming between Hungary and Russia. And you know, he's been meddling <coughs> with elections all across uh, the, the Baltic states and and in in the um, uh, in Central Europe, um, he had established very good relations with Italy, and 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 of course that was based on a very transactional relationship. You know, it, it was uh, it was energy dependence, but um, but nevertheless, you know, these countries were very reluctant. I mean, I remember last year when uh, Turkey um, began to export its um, uh, its drone technology to Ukraine, um, uh, France and and Germany were dead against it. So. Even the so you know the Western European countries who are now uh, four square you know who are now squarely with the United States at that time were very hesitant to uh, to arm uh, Ukraine and, and to build a, a sort of a military force against Russia in, in case it provokes Russia and I suppose you know Fr France France has been um, uh, for some time talking about uh, moving beyond uh, Crimea and and you know working with with the Russians because we need a partner against so-called Islamic terrorism, um, and and I think he 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 really means you know the, the Sahel region, so things were moving in Putin's direction. I suppose is my my the long way to get to that. You know, it, it didn't seem like uh, there was a need to act so decisively now. I mean, uh, could you put that down to? There's been a lot of discussion about Putin as an irrational actor. Could you put that down to you know the 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 mindset of Putin, or is it is it just unfair or unwise to to go there? I mean, I think it's difficult to really fully speculate on the mental health of any major world leader without having you know good evidence to back what you're saying. You know, it's going to be interesting to see the effect of these sanctions and if they even matter. Like, if the if he really is at a point where it's I'm going to go out with a bang, so to speak, then this this could really be dangerous and. The thing about Russia's regime is it's very personalistic. I, I tell students that, you know, Russia's regime is far closer to something more like a Syria or, or a North Korea in terms of like what happens next if Putin goes than say Iran or China, where there still is a real infrastructure to replace the supreme leader when he dies. Or if something happened to Xi, the Communist Party would obviously cook something up real quick and order be restored. You know, when Putin goes, it's going to be a real scramble for power. Just like as if something happened to Assad. You know, if Assad goes, that's it, right? Same thing with North Korea. There's going to be some major, major changes if something happened unforeseen there. And I think that uh, this is what all that makes it more risky. And this is probably another reason why people in Russia who have the capacity to potentially challenge his power may be hesitant because it could be even worse, right? The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know, right? And uh yeah, I, I, the timing is really interesting, you know, coming right out of COVID, Olympics just ending, maybe he thought this would be the, he could just pull this off and nobody would really stop him. And, and clearly he was wrong. And uh, it, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with these negotiations, if any agreement is made between Zelensky and Putin to uh, end this, because most people have commented, if there isn't a decision made soon to reach some kind of enduring agreement, the violence against civilian targets is probably going to escalate. This is going to really turn into a real, uh, you know, unmitigated total war against Ukraine. The, the Aleppo, the so-called Aleppo strategy. Yes, just bombing everything and not caring who gets killed, which is a tragedy of epic proportions for everybody, all of humanity. That's not just, we can't just boil that. You know, remember, and another thing was, for the, from the Muslim perspective, again, we have a situation now where we have Chechen Muslims many of whom don't really support Putin, but they have to be quiet. Some who really do support with this current Kadyrov regime. And uh, they're, they're fighting Muslims in Ukraine, right? So we have Muslim on Muslim violence here that is definitely not gonna help unify an already fractured global UMA if you wanna see it from that perspective. And it's really definitely gonna fracture Caucasus Muslims as well. Right, because you know, let's be honest. Most Caucasus Muslims aren't really uh, huge Putin fans. We all remember what happened there, and uh, this is something that also is very detrimental 
for I think the global ummah is having two different you know people that are of the same religion fighting each other on different national borders and uh, this this is very bad right so this is another thing we can keep in mind this is a, a divisive tragedy for Muslims living in that region as well and you know what a disaster to be some kid living in Dagestan or in one of the other places and being called up by Putin to go fight in Ukraine and uh this is this is unbelievable if you think about it this is horrible so like we should lose focus on that as well there are Muslims involved in this there are Muslims being killed in this and there are Muslims killing each other in this and and I want to uh, you touched on China there and and uh, you indicated that Putin had miscalculated the response of China I mean China's response has been uh, somewhat surprising. Um, it of course hasn't um, hasn't uh, very hasn't fully uh, come out in in condemnation of of Russia's activities, and it will never do that. But at the same time, it, it has not condoned uh, its its uh, invasion of Ukraine. And at uh, very noticeably at the General Assembly vote uh, last week, China abstained uh, from that from the final vote, and, and I think that was an indicator that uh, China is somewhat unhappy with, uh, with, with Putin's um, strategy thus far. I mean, again, w- w- why is that? Why has China uh, been very reserved in supporting probably, I mean, Russia's strongest ally or partner in, in the world is, is China. I mean, the Chinese have, have at the same time suggested that, you know, Russia is one of our strongest partners, but their actions do not back up uh, their speech here. Um, so what is going on here with with China and why has China opted to uh, to take this very, uh, uh, very soft stance uh, on, on the crisis? Because I think China still wants to be a part of the world. <laughs> like, you know, by siding with Russia, you're basically putting yourself on the team of being sanctioned and boycotted and having corporations leave. And China doesn't want to go that route. And I think this is an important res- global response to let China know that if you do something similar with Taiwan, there could be a similar response to you. I think China is definitely playing it very strategically sound by not, you know, China being that it's China can get away with sort of not, you know, by by abstaining, that was a statement in and of itself, right? They didn't need to vote affirmatively with everyone else. Just by abstaining, that was enough of a statement. And I think that, you know, these sanctions are pretty serious. Being kicked off the Swiss system is no joke. And basically having your airplanes not being allowed to fly over anybody's airspace means you can't go anywhere. And, you know, people are like, I see a lot of people mocking, ooh, Nike's leaving or ooh, McDonald's, oh no. Well, this is actually a big deal. These are lots of, these are jobs. These are uh, corporations that pay big taxes, right? There's money going, there's a huge loss from these corporations leaving this country. And I thought it was also very telling that I, if I'm, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, Iran also didn't, there's only five countries, like I think Syria, Eritrea, uh, like, you know, countries that really have very little influence and power, countries that themselves are pariahs. Uh, even Iran didn't want to get like to, because they also have an interest in getting this nuclear deal revived. And by siding with Russia, that's going to make it very hard for them to re-enter the global community. And we saw some interesting pushback when uh, I think Lavrov basically sort of potentially floated the idea out there that if you know this doesn't end, this could affect the nuclear deal. And Iran very forcefully said, like, no, we're going to, this isn't how it works. Like, we're going to operationalize our interests and stop it. And, you know, Iran has really been dependent upon Russia as one of its allies. And that also, I think, is very telling. And I think it goes to show that nobody really actually is Russia's real friend. Like, and this, of course, is how power politics works. But, like, we see that when the going gets tough, nobody's willing to jump on board with Russia. It's, it's, it's very transactional. And it's a relationship with China and Iran and all these other countries have with Russia that's really based on their own interests. And in, in the current climate, it's not even in Iran's interest to go against the global consensus too hard, right? And uh, that's a big miscalculation on Putin's part and a big miscalculation that is going to really put pressure on him because if the Putin regime is going to come down, realistically, it's going to come down from within. Nobody's going to invade and liberate Moscow. Nobody's going to take Putin out from, you know, no CIA spy is going to come in there and you know, give him ricin or something. It's going to happen from an internal coup of the oligarchs or the people rising up to the streets 
uh, you know, and, and, and demanding change and him being forced out that way. So this is the most realistic non-nuclear option, right? Because every other option involves invasion or other direct kinetic action does open the door to really serious repercussions. And, and do you think do you think the Western sanctions regime is is aimed towards that purpose? Too? Yes, that's absolutely what it's aimed towards. I think it's yeah. absolutely aimed towards getting him destabilized and either put in check or taken out altogether by internal actors. And this is sort of what the sanctions regime against Iran has been about as well, right? Mm. Nobody really wants to go in there and try to like remove the government. So the best way to do it is to get the people to do it for you. And, mm. you know, it'll be interesting to see how much loyalty people have to this regime. You know, Russia is a very poor country and it's, it's really is a paper tiger economically, right? It is not an advanced economic country in the same way that some of these other, it's not an EU country. It's not even China. It's a, it's a country that really is dependent upon a very limited amount of natural resources that it sort of exports. And, uh, you know, when you turn off that oil, like with the oil sanctions now going into place, and if that catches wind in the EU, Russia's economy is in really big trouble. Their currency is worth 155 rubles to one US dollar. I mean, you know, you, you can't live like that. And I think that this, the squeeze of these sanctions is going to start to be felt more and more each passing day. And um, it, it's going to really, you know, Putin's going to have to make a move one way or the other, right? He's going to either have to like uh, end this war or he's going to have to really escalate, right? But the status quo ain't going to work, in my opinion as these sanctions further take hold. And uh, can, can I ask you about uh, world energy prices? You mentioned there that um, after yesterday's announcement, we're talking just after Biden announced that um, he's going to, uh, he, he's going to uh, stop purchasing oil from Russia. And uh, there is now uh, a movement across Europe. Of course, it's very difficult for Europe to, uh, to, to, to untangle its, its reliance on uh, Russian energy, gas and, and oil. Uh, but uh, it's moving in that direction. Uh, Boris Johnson announced uh, simultaneously yesterday that 2022 will be the year where um, uh, we, where Britain uh, uh, ceases to purchase uh, energy from from Russia. And Britain is not as reliant as, say, Germany is on on Russian energy. But the movement is in that direction. Uh, but in in the short term, we're going to see phenomenal. Um, energy prices across across the world, and and that's going to create its own challenges for, for for domestic politics across the West, but also, you know, for the developing world, that's going to probably suffer, especially countries like Turkey, who are net importers of of energy from from Russia and from elsewhere. Um, I mean, how do you see the next year or two faring in in terms of energy prices and and the impact of of, of this. Well, I think it's going to obviously, as you said, the prices are going to be very high. I mean, my gas bill just went up this month, even so, like things are happening here already. Uh, but this is like another reason why there's probably once again another country that probably benefits from this is Iran, right? Just more desire to get things done, and this time people are going to need to buy Iranian oil, and even Venezuela. It's been clear that Biden has been even seeing if they can get involved in that. For the United States, it, it shouldn't in the long term be as big of a deal because a very small percentage of U.S. imports are from Russia for oil. But yes, you know, it sets a trend. You know, when the United States does this, others are more likely to follow. And, you know, that means if the EU starts seriously cutting back or banning Russian oil and natural gas, then that is a death sentence for their economy. Like their economy already may be in a death sentence, but that will be the, the end. And uh yeah, people are going to, like I said, this conflict is bad globally. This is why as Muslims, we have to pay attention because it's going to affect all of us. Like every one of us needs to use transportation one way or another, whether we, and this includes, so even if you don't own a car, the price on the train, on the bus is going to go up because these things require this. So this is another argument. And I know I'm going to sound like a, a, a environmentalist here, but like for getting away from the dependence on natural gas and oil, like we have technology to harness solar and other safer uh, and less, you know, other energy sources that are less polluting. And maybe it's time to start taking that seriously. And this is one way to keep check on some of these rentier oil states and these other states that are autocratic is to not give them 
the money that they get from these rents that they sell, these oil sales, right? So if countries diversify their economy or uh, their energy sectors and the, the, their energy use, then this would by default weaken the position of someone like Putin. So, I mean, you know, it's the year 2022 and, you know, electric cars are becoming more and more common. The technology is there, but people still don't want to fully make the, the serious move away from you know, oil and natural gas. And I think it, it's something that will be taken more serious now. Uh, where do you see or how do you assess uh, the future of the liberal world order? I ask this because um, until yeah, until before until this crisis, um, most commentators were, was, were assessing uh, American power to be declining. Uh, they were assessing, you know, after Afghanistan and it, it you know, the, the failed withdrawal, Biden was seen to be uh, a failed you know, leader when it comes to foreign policy and, and he had lost moral authority in the world. But a lot of this has turned around, right? You know, America is, is back and, you know, the, the, the rhetoric is, is backed up by, by meaningful action here. I mean, we, we see a unified Western alliance and, and that's going to be hard to break, at least for, for revisionist states or for even states in our part of the world that do want to, you know, uh, establish their own uh, their own sovereignty over over their their affairs. Um, so I assess this as you know a return to uh, American power and a return to this liberal world order. I mean, am I being am I am I exaggerating uh, this analysis? I mean, what's your take on uh, on this? Is this a long term reestablishment of the liberal global international order? I don't know. I, I would guess probably not. I still think that there's right-wing actors that are going to continue to seek their autonomy from the globalists, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for the time being in the time of crisis, it does show that America still is the super, the leading superpower of the world. And nobody's looking to China to solve this. Everyone's looking towards Russia and NATO still, or I'm the United States and NATO. And um, I think that that sort of shows that you know, America still reigns supreme, whether we like it or not. And it seems like that this is a chance for the United States to sort of, as you said, reassert itself if it handles this properly. But at the same time, this is a very high risk game, especially with a nuclear powered state. You know, this, you know, engaging in a direct conflict with Russia would be catastrophic. And this is why politicians on all across the aisle would avoid starting a war with Russia. So, yeah, I think that this is something to think about. And what is the lesson for Muslims is that we still need to develop our own voice. We still need to create our own ability to not have to run to America anytime, every time something goes wrong or to run to some other power. There needs to be a unified Islamic consensus. And, you know, these the current leading actors in the Muslim world are not getting the job done, right? Saudi Arabia, Egypt, these are not places that are gonna protect us. And I think that it shows we have a long way to go and this should be a wake up call for us as well. That we're gonna to have to look out for ourselves and we're gonna to have to start getting over petty differences and trying to unite in the face of continued global adversity. Dr. Joseph Kaminsky, Jazakallah thank you very much for uh, your time today. And uh, it's, it's been great speaking to you. Great, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And like I said, uh, I think it was good. I think it was a good discussion, and I think uh, hopefully people will enjoy this. And uh, I think you know, I, I really think personally, like I just I've been so appalled by the comments I'm reading online. This this like ha ha ha, you're getting squeezed. Like you know, first off, United States and Ukraine are not the same, right? If these are not like by Ukraine getting bombed and these people being killed, that's not showing America anything, right? You're not getting back at America. It's just innocent people. I've been to Ukraine, it's poor, it's very poor. It's incredibly poor. I stayed one night in a hostel for six euros and I said, wow, this is cheap. And she goes, really? People often say this is too expensive. So like, this is a country that really, if you put it in the EU, it would by far be amongst the poorest countries per capita. People really are poor there. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a place that still has a lot of corruption. Yeah, there are some neo-Nazis there. That Azov brigade is real. Their, their symbolism is nasty. But at the same time, you know, the Ukrainian forces aren't all Nazis. This is, there are elements of that. But at the same time, it's not the same as like, <laughs> what Russia's doing, which is 
truly aggressive. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. And um, I, I just think it, it's there is a lack of political literacy in, in the Ummah. And- yeah, it's like people forget that Russia is actually bad too. What the United States did in Afghanistan is horrible. There's absolutely no forgiving that. But Russia's doing Syria is also horrible. Like it's it's really horrible. And like it's like just forgetting about Syria completely. And you know, it's, it's it's I don't understand how that kind of selective memory is possible. It really is exactly political illiteracy and a lack of understanding of how serious a Russian victory, a quick victory, would pose a threat to Muslims in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Albania, and even Muslims living in Serbia. Because remember, there's the Sanjak region, Novi Pazar. These are Muslim-majority areas, and all these people would be under real, real threat and pressure if these fascists got their way to create their ethno-religious Russian whatever empire that they want. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.